Well, today's installment into our Acts series is a game changer because it will define the trajectory for the remainder of the book of Acts. Paul will be arrested in the passage we will read today, and he will be a prisoner from now until the end of Acts 28. From this moment in Acts 21 all the way to the end, Paul will be, to a certain extent, in chains. Some of that will consists of moments where he's testifying before rulers and gets to share the gospel. Some of that will be in house arrest in Rome where he gets to not only preach but write letters. One of the lasting things that I hope happens from this book of Acts is that it changes the way you read the New Testament letters for the rest of the time that you study scripture because now you get the background into what got Paul to some of these cities and then what got him arrested and where he was sitting when he sat down and was like, okay, I got to write the church in Philippi. Oh, we know how the church in Philippi started. That was when Paul thought he wanted to go to Ephesus, but God took him over here. And all this background helps you build a framework to understand how these letters were born and how these churches were born. But this moment in Jerusalem today is the moment where Paul is not only rejected, but beaten and carried out with an angry mob shouting that they want his life to end. He loses any approval he was attempting to get from his Jewish brothers and sisters. And that's why I want to title this sermon before we read the scripture. The title of this sermon is called Breaking Our Addiction to Approval. Breaking Our Addiction to approval. To be clear, if you're addicted to approval, you are not alone. You are human. There is an intrinsic need for all human beings of all ages, all different giftings and personalities. There is an intrinsic need to be valued or esteemed. And that personal value and esteem from within would fill you to a degree that you would feel that your life is worth living. Now, this, this manifests itself differently across seasons of life and depending on if you're more of a social media person or you're even just a social person. Like, we, we all want approval and validation, but we all want it from different groups and from different sizes of groups, and we all get a certain level of inner value from knowing that we have been approved by certain voices. I just want to tell you that addiction is actually not a bad thing. That's a God-given thing. So the sermon title is a little misleading because you, you can never really break your addiction to approval, but you can break your addiction to the approval of man and the approval of the voices that matter less than the one that is intended to fill you from within. If you don't know the Christian vision for what it means to walk in the kingdom of God and walk as a son or a daughter of, of the living God, it means you've come to lay your life down at the feet of Jesus and be filled on the inside with his Holy Spirit and the love and the, the approval that your heavenly father gave to Jesus during his lifetime becomes the approval that now defines you before God so that you're not walking into your life with this empty space from within asking anyone and everyone and everything to fill it, but you know I am a son, I am a daughter of the living God and every ounce of approval that my soul is starving for is actually found when I get it from the source. And that source is the God who made me. So if you're going to break your addiction to approval in the wrong places, you've actually got to get it from the right space, and it's more complicated than you think. Our church has a lot of people who check it out on Sundays who are not yet Christians. You're always welcome to be here. I hope today is an amazing example of what you're missing out on and what it could look like for you to say yes to if you said yes to Jesus. 
Our church has thousands of people who have said yes to Jesus. And it also has thousands of people who don't functionally trust the voice of God as the voice of approval that defines their life. And I say functionally trust because I think if you're a believer, you would say, all that matters is that I have God's approval. All that matters is that my heavenly father loves me. All that matters is that Jesus has died for me. You would say that on paper, theoretically, but functionally, we all have trust structures that become self-destructive if not checked and corrected. And it leads to self-destruction in a myriad of different ways. Yes, you have the teenager or the college student who so desperately wants the approval of the crowd that they're willing to compromise their convictions. Yes, you have the person who keeps dating and going into the same types of relationship because of an inner void. Those are easier to spot. The harder ones to spot are the lifelong businessman who never got the approval of his dad, so he's decided to replace it with the way he looks because of the stuff he's accumulated in the world. And all of it is to project on other people a level of approval that he never got from dad. And he can hide it behind all these things that our culture would say, that's awesome, but on the inside self-destruction. It can look like self-destruction to every friend group that you're a part of. Have you ever noticed that if people tend to burn bridges with certain friend groups, it's usually an inner issue that's being exposed in their life over time, not the different friend groups that they keep skipping from and in between. And I've watched how people who don't get this area worked out will end up projecting on their networks, whether they be family or friends, all of these issues, and spend their entire lives thinking that the problem is they haven't found the right social circle. The problem is people don't, just don't understand them. The problem is people just tend to hurt them. When really the problem is there's this inner need for approval that they never really fully let God fill, and now it's poisoning every space that they walk into. Today is about emotional and relational health that's related to how much you allow God to love you from within. And regardless of your season of life, regardless of how long you've been following Jesus, I think for our church, this is a major issue for us. And I think this is something that we have to confront because whatever your functional trust structure is, whatever the, the voice is that it would define you to get approval from, eventually, at a certain point in life, rejection will come. Like there will be an emptiness from that well or from that source that you are looking to. And if you do not have a deeper source filling you from within, that self-destruction will mean the end of what God could have done and would have done in and through your life. And we're going to witness one of the greatest rejections in the Apostle Paul's story that doesn't ultimately take him out of God's journey for his life, even though it literally takes him out physically from a beating. Do y'all want to read this story in Acts chapter 21? Did you bring your Bibles? Everybody okay? Y'all are looking at me like, whoa, we're going there. Of course we're going there. How long have you been coming here? If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up. So awesome. Love to see it. Okay, just because I'm curious, if you want the Chiefs to win next Sunday, keep your Bible up. If you want the Chiefs to win because of Taylor Swift and Taylor Swift alone, keep your Bible up. Just curious about this. My wife has hers up. That's great. We lost to them last year, baby. I, I want to, if you want 49ers, hold yours up. I just, I just can't get on board. Team Taylor, Swifties, whatever. Turn with me to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. I just can't. I, I, there's multiple reasons why. I just, anybody want to do something else next Sunday night? Let, let, let's throw a 5 p.m. out and just let people come worship Jesus that night instead. It'd be great. 
Acts chapter 21. We're going to pick up right where John left off last week, and they're going to arrive in Jerusalem. Now, when you read Acts 21, verse 17, man, this sounds like it's not that big of a deal, but there's a lot loaded in these first couple of words. Acts 21, verse 17. If you're there, say, I'm there. When we arrived at Jerusalem, if those five words are not hitting you with a lot of weight, that means you missed the last two sermons. You have to go back. God compelled Paul from within to go to Jerusalem by the voice of the Holy Spirit. And he also warned Paul by the Holy Spirit that if he went to Jerusalem, he would suffer a lot. You know, the call of God and danger are not incompatible. God can call you to a space that is dangerous, that will be hard, that could cost you everything. And it could be God who's warning you about how hard it is and God who's also telling you to do it because you've laid down your life to follow Jesus and your only aim is to testify to the good news of God's grace. That's a loaded statement when we arrived at Jerusalem. The brothers and sisters, that's Christians, the church, received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So James is the half-brother of Jesus. This is the writer of the book of James. If you're wanting to know, once we finally finish Acts, what are we going to study next? It's going to be the book of James this summer, which is super exciting but also super convicting. James is the lead pastor, if you will, of the church in Jerusalem. And he's got the elders with him. Paul has arrived from spreading the gospel in all these Gentile territories. And he's like, this is what God's doing. And they're like, that's amazing. They receive him warmly. It's going well. And then in verse 20, it says, when they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed. And all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So they're exchanging good news. God's moving there. That's awesome. God's moving here too. There's thousands of Jews who are zealous for the law, who love Jesus. But I want you to circle that phrase zealous or zeal. When you see zeal related to New Testament Jewish Christians, it almost always is synonymous with, with this intense, violent view toward the Greco-Roman world because of a legitimate belief that the kingdom of God did not, in Israel, did not need to be under the rule and oppression of another leader. It goes all the way back to Egypt. So when you read about zeal, there's a group in ancient Judaism called the Zealots. And they actually believed, you, you see some of this in The Chosen if you watch that at all. Like they actually believed in violent insurrection against the government was the way God was leading them to move forward. When you read zealous about the law, it means they're serious about Jesus but they want to keep their Jewishness. And, and they've heard that wherever you go, you kind of speak against that. They've actually heard that you tell Jewish families, you don't even have to circumcise your kids anymore. Paul did not teach that. But the rumors about Paul are spreading because wherever Paul would go, what would he do? He would go to the synagogue and the Jews would reject him. So then he would go next door and start a church. Well, guess what would happen with the Jews in the synagogue who came to believe in Jesus? They would leave the synagogue and go to Paul's churches. 
So now what started to stir about Paul in Jerusalem is this guy does not love the people of God anymore. He teaches everyone everywhere to go another way. And so even though they have all these believers at the church in Jerusalem, James and the elders are like, we got an issue. Because we're excited that God's moving, but we got all these zealous Jews who have been hurt by the world around them that has oppressed them. And they, they're, they're sort of this like violent thing that we have to squelch a little bit, but we got to do something because they're going to hear that you are here and this could go bad. And it says, they will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. Verse 23. I love that. They said, what shall we do? Do what we tell you. You ever had a friend who likes to ask, hey, what should we do? But they've already decided this is where we're going to eat. This is where we're going. They're that super decisive friend who's never really going to have a conversation, but they like to pretend to be open-minded. That's the elders in Jerusalem. What shall we do, Paul? Great. We have a plan already. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. I'll explain that in a second. Then everyone will know There is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. We covered that earlier in the book of Acts. It's what happened in the Jerusalem council. So we've given the direction for how the Jews should participate in the people of God. But we got to do something about you, Paul, because in their eyes, they're not ready to accept you. So here's the brilliant idea. They got four men who have taken what's called a Nazarite vow. You can read in detail what a Nazarite vow is in Numbers chapter six. It's where a Jew wants to set themselves apart for a new level of worship for God. And what they do is they set a period, a minimum of 30 days, and they dedicate themselves to do three things. They dedicate themselves to not cut their hair, to not drink wine, and to not touch anything unclean, namely a dead animal. If you think about the story of Samson, he had a Nazarite vow over his entire life. And if you think about Samson's downfall, what three things happen? He touches a dead animal and is violent with it. He drinks and he gets his hair cut. And and so when he ultimately breaks his Nazarite vow, that's actually when he loses his power. Well, a Nazarite vow was something that you could choose minimum of 30 days, a lot of times a lot longer. And at the end of the 30 days, you had to offer this really expensive sacrifice to be able to get your hair cut and to be able to drink wine again. And so their idea is, hey, hey, they only got a week left. Why don't you jump in on the purification rites with them for a week? But you be the one, and other people did this 2,000 years ago, by the way. You be the one who goes into the temple with them and you pay their expense. This is a hefty expense. And if everybody sees you participating with these four and everybody sees you pay that fine, they're going to go, oh, those were just rumors about Paul. That wasn't true. He's actually one of our own. He's actually legit. This will work. Now for Paul, this is a very interesting decision because of course he would want to defer to James and the elders. But at the same time, Paul is the one who called out Peter for only eating with Jews when Gentiles came around. And so it's kind of a touchy area for him. He wants to prove that God has started one family across bloodlines, but at the same time, he wants to be wise and he wants to be sensitive. What does he do? Verse 26, the next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. So Paul goes, I'm in. I'll do it. Let's see if it works. Verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and against our law and this place. 
And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. If anyone listening to this sermon has ever been lied about or had rumors spread about them, this is very, very personal to read. Paul had friends out in the outer court of the temple, but he never took non-Jews into the space they weren't allowed, but yet it's being said about him. Yeah, I even saw him with that guy, Trophimus. I guarantee you he took him into the temple. This is how rumors spread. This is how reputations are ruined. This is how people turn against one another. And in our social media age, it happens faster and louder than ever. Verse 30, the whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. Now sometimes when we read the Bible and we read about violent attacks, and persecution like this, we can be so numb to it because we, we grew up seeing all these images of Jesus being crucified and we heard that the early church was persecuted and most of the church fathers died in violent ways. And so you can read this and picture Paul getting beat up and some Romans coming in and removing him and it's, we need to see and feel the weight of the graphic physical detail that's there but also the level of social rejection that exists for Paul in this moment. This is Jerusalem, capital city of Israel. This is the temple. These are the brothers and sisters that he says at one point in the New Testament, I'd be willing to trade my own salvation that they would get it and know Jesus. And when these rumors are being spread, while he's to the best of his ability trying to prove that his intentions are pure, that his teaching is solid, the whole city is jumping in on an opportunity to take a shot at Paul. And when it says that the soldiers carried him out, a lot of commentators say that they had to carry him out because he was unconscious. It's a picture of the great apostle Paul, unconscious, being carried by Roman soldiers while thousands of Jews shout, get rid of him, get rid of him, get rid of him. There are echoes of Calvary in this very account. Rejection to the nth degree. And all because he tried to prove himself. Now that, there's like a raging debate among biblical scholars about what Paul did in this chapter. That's, that's like, it's like 50-50. Half think Paul should not have even tried to appease the crowd. 
He got on to Peter previously for doing that. Like he should have just stuck to his guns, you know, stayed in his lane and maybe something different could have happened. But then the other side would say, no, Paul is more than willing to become all things to all people that he might save some. Yes, it is ridiculous that he would have to pay such a hefty financial fine and do all of these external things to prove anything, but he wants to remove any barrier and any obstacle that he can from his Jewish brethren to come to believe in Jesus. I happen to align more with the second opinion about that. I don't think there was anything wrong with what Paul was doing to try to prove himself to this group of people. I think it's all good and fair. The issue of this passage is not, did he do the right thing or do the wrong thing? The issue of this passage is that you're watching in real time Paul's inner desire to be approved and accepted by people he loves is dying. And it's a good desire. He loves these people. But the whim of a crowd has turned on a man who accomplished more for the kingdom of God than, than any other man outside of the Son of God. Not fair, I think, to compare him to Jesus. But I hope you see in this moment, you have an imperfect man who's experiencing rejection to the nth degree. And here's the reason why I felt like this was so relevant for our church family and why this little detail about what's happening here needed to be preached. Because Acts 21, Paul's arrest, is going to lead to the greatest era of gospel expansion through his ministry because of this arrest. For most people, being beaten unconscious and everyone you love shouting, get rid of him, that'd be it. Church that's there in Jerusalem, they're in support of Paul, but they don't really know what to do with this level of violence that, that's come against them. Don't picture them yelling the rejection. No, they're, they're still on Paul's team, but they're just overpowered by the mob. But it's not even close to the end of Paul's ministry. In fact, you could argue that this moment was only a propeller forward into everything God had for Paul. Why? Because what is happening in real time is something that has to happen in your life in real time. And here it is. You can write this down. The crowd's rejection does not take Paul out because Paul's inner world was not ruled by the crowd's opinion. The crowd's rejection does not take Paul out completely because Paul's inner world was not ruled by the crowd's opinion. The crowd's opinion mattered, but it didn't own him. This sermon today is not intended to create this false narrative where we all don't care what anyone thinks. We only care what God thinks. No, you're a human being. Of course you care what people think. Of course you want approval and validation from people that you love. Of course Paul does. But at the end of the day, his source on an inner level is attached to pleasing a father who he knows I am in right relationship with him and I am doing everything I can this side of heaven to follow him and be faithful to him. And my inner world cannot be ruled in the courtroom of public opinion. ACC, look at me. If you want to go to a new level in your relationship with God, graduate from your well-being being ruled by the courtroom of public opinion to your well-being already being given a verdict from on high that says, accepted, approved, mine, kingdom of God, son, daughter. That's what's happened for Paul. And that's what doesn't have to be this one moment for this really, really famous Christian. It can be the state of your heart. Paul actually gives us the background on what God did in him in Galatians chapter one, verse 10. You don't have to turn there. This is one of the coolest verses that Paul ever wrote. He said, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still 
trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. For those of you who don't know the context of Galatians, go, put that verse back up real quick for me. If you don't know the context of Galatians, this is the most intense Paul gets about what it means to be a believer in Jesus and relate to the teachings of Judaism. And he goes off on the Galatians because they have been taken captive by Judaizers who had taught them, hey, when you come to know Jesus, you still have to circumcise your kids. You still got to follow these levels of the Jewish law. And Paul is adamantly correcting some of the questions that were coming up about him in Jerusalem at the time. He didn't say, Jews, you don't have to circumcise your kids. He never said that, but he said, no, listen, there's a new circumcision, whether Jew or Gentile, that happens in the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the one that matters. That's the transformation that defines you. And in a moment where he is almost losing it in Galatians 1 on them going, I can't believe that you would turn away from the gospel I gave you. He stops and he says, I just want you all to know, I know I'm losing your approval, but I need you to know, I'm not trying to win the approval of human beings or please people. If I were still trying to do that, I would not be a servant of Christ. There is an allegiance shift that happens when you become a Christian and it's not just, I'm no longer in the kingdom of darkness. I'm in the kingdom of light. It's also my inner motive for living is no longer the applause of a crowd. It is the approval of a father. And most of you never crossed over that line of faith. You crossed over the line of faith that was dead in your sin, alive in Jesus Christ. That's awesome. You prayed the prayer. You got baptized. You believe my sins are forgiven. That's awesome. But too many believers in Jesus can go decades without gut checking their inner world to go, do I really trust in God's voice alone? Here's a better way of asking it. Is God enough? Is the approval of God enough? Whether you get a level of approval from this crowd or not, from that guy or not, from that job or not, from that pathway or not, or not, is it really enough? When John Thompson was preaching last week, one of the lines he said that pierced me was we have to mature from merely loving God to also trusting God. Is God enough? And when I'm, when I'm honest enough about it, at a minimum, my answer is like, maybe. I try to play out this story, at least in my context, for my life personally, in moments like this. Like, what would happen to my inner world if right now, all of you, at the exact same time, stood up and walked out right now? Please don't do that. That would make this moment super awkward. You're like, I've been waiting for this. No. But like, I, I just envisioned this this week. What if, and what if, as you did, the look was just... I can't believe we ever trusted you to tell us about God. We're moving on. Now, I know in my heart of hearts that God has called me to articulate his word in the context of a local church. I've got all the, the inner beliefs down. But if in, in practicality, that level of rejection happened, and as I stood here and you all walked that way, could I stand here and say, he's enough? He's enough. And whatever voice can dictate the external value of your life, yours is probably different than mine, but we all have them. What if it was massive rejection? And what if with the best of your intentions and efforts, you did all the right things and still didn't get the approval you were after? 
Is there an inner voice that rules and reigns over your spirit more than their opinion? And if there's not, you have some practical, deep, inner work to do. The great thing is, is that it's the very inner work that defined Jesus's ministry. Jesus and Paul both had two things attached to the approval of man that so many of us are missing. They had a level of approval that they'd already received from God, so they weren't going out into their life with an empty heart going, please fill me with your approval. They already got that from God. But they also had one pure and holy ambition with their life, which was to please God every step of the way. And I just want to preach those two realities into your life before we take communion. I want to show you practically how do I get to the point where I'm no longer competing for value and validation in the eyes of everyone else. But how do I realistically receive that from God so that I can live a life pleasing to him? Do you want these two points? Do you think this is going to be helpful? Stay with me. Number one, these are so simple. We must stay more connected to God's approval than their opinion. It's a lot harder than it sounds. We must stay more connected to God's approval than their opinion. And notice I said more connected. This cannot be a sermon where we're disconnected from reality. Please do not try to be the pioneering trailblazer who goes, I just don't care what people think. You know who says, I don't care what people think the loudest? The, the people who care the most about what other people think. They're the ones who are the loudest about it. It's like, as you're saying it, I see how much you really care. And, and it, just, it just, guys, of course we care. You are a human being. It is okay to want to be seen as important. It is okay to want to be friends with certain people. It is okay to have this innate desire in you to go, I want to be valued and loved and accept you're a human being. The message is not put that down and get it from God. The message is, are you more connected to God's approval? So if you lost that one, you're okay. Are you more connected? And people who are healthy enough to receive approval and validation from human beings in the right context are actually the people who have received it supremely from God in the first place. This is what John was trying to teach us on Tuesday night when he said, we have to admit, we don't just do sin. We don't just like sin. We love sin. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we love it. We love greed. We love lust. We love jealousy. We're going in our sin. Come on, give me more of that. He said, you have to admit that so that you can defeat it because the only road to victory is to have a love that is greater than those loves. And when the Holy Spirit burns in you a passion for Jesus, it burns every other competing love and passion away. It's a war of loves. Well, in this one, it's a war of approvals. It's not that that opinion or their opinion or his opinion doesn't matter. It's have I stayed more connected to the source, which is the voice of my father. And most of you know this because I've been teaching it for years. But if you're new, just got to make sure you understand this. Jesus's ministry began with his baptism. Jesus did not need to get baptized to turn away from any sin. He got baptized to fulfill all righteousness. That's what he says to John the Baptist. He did it as a model for us. But when the father speaks, the father says, this is my son whom I love. In him, I am well pleased. If you notice when God the Father speaks out loud to Jesus, he's sort of repetitive. He likes to talk about how Jesus is his son and he loves him and enjoys loving him. I think that's how a lot of Jesus' conversations went with his father. Just connected to how loved he is by his father. 
And that fuel for Jesus's ministry is what kept him undistracted by what are they going to think? What are they going to think? And how is this going to go out? And how is that? Well, once they hear that, no, Jesus is operating from one voice from within. Going, I've already got the approval of my father. And now I'm willing to lock in to my ministry. Now notice this. When Jesus is tempted by the devil right after the voice says that, what does the devil question three times about Jesus? What the father said. If you really are the son of God, if you really are the son of God, if you, what do you mean if I really am? I just heard him say that. See, the competing voices couldn't compete for Jesus because the voice didn't just say, you're my son, I love you, in you I am well, well please. The voice got through to him. That's what's not happening for you. You have to have disciplines in your life built, not just for you to remember that God's love, that God loves you, but for it to, uh, to abide, to be connected to him, for it to be lodged deeply in your soul. There is a difference between the Miles who walks up here and goes, I know God loves me, and the Miles who walks up here having been in the presence of God and goes, I know God loves me. And the difference is, have I created the space to let that truly and fully get through to me? And it begins in your one-on-one times with the Lord, but it extends to your relational lives with other people because it's called rooting your life in verdict living instead of trial living. Here's the difference. Most of us live our lives in public every day on trial. And it's almost like everybody else is the jury and the judge. And we're trying to play out our lives in a certain way that they would look at us and go, wow, worthy, amazing, gifted, talented, accepted, liked, whatever. Whatever we want those voices to say. And we're almost spending our lives just hoping and praying that when the verdict comes, it lands in our favor. That's trial living. Verdict living means I'm not looking forward to a day where a ruling will be made on my behalf. I'm reacting to a verdict that has already been given by the God of the universe. I could not be more approved by my father. I could not be more loved. I could not be more embraced. And it's one thing to sing it. It's one thing to go, yeah, I believe that on paper. But it's another thing to have a relationship with God where you let that acceptance and approval get lodged into your soul and you live in response to it, not ambitious to gain more of it. So what does it mean to stay more connected to God's approval? It means learning how to let God love you, particularly in the morning. Letting the promises of God wash over your soul again so you're not competing for every other voice and promise that you want to see happen. If you want to live like this, you got to stay more connected to God's approval than their opinion. I believe I see this in Paul and you see this in the rest of his ministry moving forward, but I want this for you as well. Number two. And this is it. How do I live this out? How do I break the addiction to approval? We must resolve that living to please God is our only aim. We must resolve that living to please God is our only aim. Wait, wait, wait. I thought you were telling me to live like God is already pleased. Why would you live to try to please a God who's already pleased? Great question. And this is what so many of you are missing. It doesn't end with, well, God's already pleased. I'll just do whatever I want. It's, hold on, did you, just, did you hear what you just said? God is pleased with you in the blood of Jesus? You, depraved, unfaithful, sinful, 
anxious, inconsistent, emotionally volatile, bruised, wounded, for some of you abused, neglected, alone, inconsiderate, mean, angry. You are approved by God. When you receive that level of love, the result is not, thanks, now I'll go live for what everyone else is living for. It's, if you are gonna do that for me, my only aim and my only response is a lifestyle of grateful worship. I want my life to be a living sacrifice at your throne. I want my worship to be an aroma in heaven. I want to please you. And you know what's crazy? The Bible teaches that by the way we live our lives, we can live pleasing to God. When you choose holiness over worldliness, God's pleased. When you live God's way instead of the world's way, God's pleased. But, but it's not pleasure in like a, a, a teacher with a check mark of you did your thing. No, no, no. It's, it's the pleasure of a father who delights in you. My kids at their ages right now want to know more than they want to know anything else in the world. Does dad see me and is he pleased with me? But they're not doing that the whole time going, I wonder if he's still going to give me a room at home. I wonder if I still have a place in the family. That, that, that's, that's the courtroom that most of us are living in of going, well, if I mess it up, then will I even still be approved? And will I even, no, 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 no. This isn't the world's version of love. This is God. He's different than you. Slow to anger. Abounding in what? Love and faithfulness. But that word faithfulness in the New, in the New Testament Greek is the word um, pistis. It's where we get the Latin phrase, bona fide, good faith, bona fide. And on the back of a Roman coin, there's a word, which is my last name. It says fidelis, which means faithful. And there's a picture of two hands shaking like this. A good faith agreement is when two sides have come together. You have never been taught this because you were taught your whole life. There's not two sides. It's just God's grace. You just accept it. But hold on. Hebrews teaches us that God does the saving and you do the gratitude. And your persevering in being grateful to God is how you respond to the faithfulness of God. So now I want to please God and making him happy is my only aim. Living a holy life is my only aim. But also I love that Paul models this. If I'm considered to be a fool for Christ's sake, that's fine. Like, are you there? Can you honestly say that your faithfulness of God to God has crossed over into if everybody thinks I'm a fool, I'm good? I was so convicted by this this week because I became a Christian 22 years ago this week. February 1st, 2002, the Holy Spirit of God filled me and some of my friends in the most unlikely way. And our immediate response, like any middle schooler would do, is we made t-shirts. And at the time, our favorite song was a song called Jesus Freak by DC Talk. Anybody remember this? I know you remember it, Justin. Jesus Freak. Man, we had these shirts. We had two styles. One was black with red writing. One was white with red writing. And it said, we'll always be Jesus Freaks. That was, that was me at 13. And, and I, I thought it was so cool. I was like, I don't even care. I think it's so cool. I think back on that now and I'm a little bit embarrassed and a little bit like, stop, stop. Because there's a part of you as you grow and mature in your relationship with God that sort of grows out of wanting to be misunderstood in any way. 
yeah, I love Jesus, but I just, I don't, I don't want them to see me that way. I don't want those friends to think of me that way. I don't want them to think that I'm like so radical that like I can't spend time with them anymore. So, I, so, so, so we get good as we mature in our faith of like not being too crazy and not being too foolish. ACC, can, can we return to like the seventh grade level of loving and trusting God? We'll always be Jesus freaks. I, I don't care. I don't care if I get accepted or rejected. My only aim is that he would be pleased. And I think there's a part of the Father's heart in heaven that is so much more honored when we honor him and experience rejection than when we just honor him and experience all the applause the world has to offer. I get it. We want the applause. But I think there's something about God that even when we don't get it from the world, but all we care about is that our lives are pleasing in his sight. I think there's something about him that is moved by that. That's where I want your heart and your spirit to get to today as we take communion. You can get your elements out for communion right now. If you didn't get one at any room we're gathered in, just raise your hand. Someone from our team will hopefully be walking around in a second and bring those to you. Raise it high so they can see you. This is where we remember why God can approve of us because of the blood and the body of Jesus. If you're not a Christian in the room, you just wanna slide that under your seat, but I would highly encourage you to think about saying yes to a relationship with God for the first time. One of the coolest things that happened on Tuesday night is there were people who said yes to a relationship with Jesus for the first time, like all over this room. It was crazy. And so I I don't wanna discount that that is happening in real time. But as you take communion today, this is the part of the gathering where we believe Jesus tangibly comes into the room. We're physically remembering the sacrifice that gave us this access. Check your heart. Go to the spaces God is convicting you. Husbands, pray over your wives that your only aim would be to please God. And let's just take a moment in the presence of God before we sing one lyric. We'll do that in just one second. But y'all are blessed to take communion and then we'll come right back.